The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast and welcome to our Gloucester History Festival special series. Now, this year we've had an exciting opportunity to cover some part, some small fraction of the Gloucester History Festival and we will be bringing that content to you in a couple of special episodes. Now, the Gloucester History Festival is an exciting event where history unfolds in one of the most historically fascinating cities in the UK. This year's festival theme is Quests and Curiosity, and over the two weeks from September the 2nd to September the 17th, 2023, it offers an impressive array of over 150 events, starting off with Gloucester Day celebrations and including tours, talks, heritage open days, exhibitions and the intriguing Blackfriar Talks. This year, the Blackfriar Talks feature more than 100 of Britain's best-known historians, broadcasters and authors. These thought-provoking discussions take place over the course of nine days within the impressive medieval venue of Blackfriars Priory. Now, if you're feeling you've missed out on one experience the festival, don't be worried as the festival returns next year for the spring weekend, taking place from Friday, April 12th to Sunday, April 14th, 2024, and again in autumn 2024 from Saturday, September 7th to Sunday, September 22nd, promising even more historical insights and adventures. So if you've missed it this year, be sure to plan ahead to come along in 2024. Now, without further ado, here is one of our episodes of the Gloucester History Festival special series. Yeah? All right, awesome. So, hello and welcome to the uh, History of Jackson podcast. Today, we are talking to Matt Lewis. How are you doing, Matt? I'm very good, Jackson. How are you? I'm doing very well. And today, we're going to talk about your talk here at Gloucester History Festival, which is on one of one of the most interesting parts of history I feel which is learned about the princes and the tower so I want I want to ask you and I, I do this for all the guests what was the inspiration behind your book and your talk uh, so the the book the survival of the princes in the tower was really it grew out of the fact that I have been obsessed with Richard the third the prince in the tower yeah. I read everything I could find about it um, over the years and I was intrigued by all of these mentions of the ideas that they might not have died in 1483, but they were always sort of one sentence or yeah. a fairly dismissive reference to a different theory. And I just couldn't find anywhere where all of these theories were gathered together and explained in any kind of single volume kind of thing. So I couldn't find the book, so I yeah. wrote it. <laughs> um, and the talk today really is, I mean, you say talk, it's probably more like an argument yeah. verging on a fight, uh, is Nathan Amin... Uh, Nicola Tallis and myself kind of debating the, the fate of the princes in the tower. And this is really born from the, the discussions that we have on social media. People seem to enjoy us having respectful disagreements yeah. <laughs> on a regular basis. Uh, so it just sort of grew into uh, an event that we've done a couple of times where we just kind of pitch these ideas to a, an audience and then we ask people to vote at the end on what they think happened. I think that's, I think it's a great idea. I like the point as well that you say, I couldn't find the book, so I wrote the book. I think that's a, the tale of many historians. Yeah, I think so. And I think if, if you've got a passion and an idea and you can't find anyone that's done it before, then it's, it's crying out for a book probably because I doubt you're the only person. Yeah, I think that's good advice for any historian. Now, we're talking about the Prince of the Tower and using that term, Prince of the Tower. You know, who were the Prince of the Tower? And why is the issue so contentious? So these are the sons of Edward IV, uh, who was a, the, the victorious king in the Wars of the Roses, if you like, the first of the Yorkist kings of England from 1461, 
kicked off the throne for a little while in 1470, yeah. comes back in 1471, dies unexpectedly in 1483 at the age of 40, and he leaves behind a 12-year-old son as his heir, Edward V, and Edward has a younger brother, Richard, who is nine years old when all of this kicks off. So they, they both end up eventually in the Tower of London preparing for Edward V's coronation, which we would know would never take place. So because there are two princes there together in the tower, they just get remembered as the princes in the tower. It's quite a, a convenient name for them. Um, there's lots of discussion about whether we should call them princes because they'd been declared yeah. illegitimate by this point, so they weren't real princes. But it's a really nice name that, that fits and is quite evocative, and that's how everyone knows them. So you know, I don't have an issue yeah. with them being called <laughs> the princes in the tower. And I think the, the issues around them are just so divisive and controversial still because they... Effectively, they disappear from the known record in 1483 with no satisfactory explanation of where they've gone. And there will be stories over the years and the decades that follow that they've been murdered by one of three or four or five potential suspects. There are also stories that they survived, that they escaped, or that Richard never meant them any harm and that they lived beyond his reign and we get things like in the 1490s, you get Perkin Warbeck, who claims to be the younger of the princes in the tower for most of the 1490s and has yes. this incredible career claiming to be the rightful king of England. So there is this lingering uncertainty about what really happened to them. No one can prove with the evidence that we have at the moment, no one can prove what happened to them. So is, there is this big gaping void into which you can build these stories of what might have gone on. It's, it's, it's certainly interesting to see those pretenders arise during Henry's reign and it's interesting to see what different people think and I, want, I kind of want to unpick that now really a little bit you know what are the main we've mentioned a couple but what are the main theories today about what happened to these princes I think probably still the prevalent theory is that Richard III their uncle ordered their murders in the autumn of 1483 because of the threat that they might pose to his throne uh, that someone might try to to spring them from the tower and hold them up as figureheads of rebellion or even potentially that in 10 years' time they might come looking for what they considered to be their rightful inheritance. So I think most, most historians will probably tell you that they're satisfied Richard murdered the princes in the tower. The main other suspect that's talked about in the sources at the time is the Duke of Buckingham, so Henry Stafford. He'd been excluded from government altogether by Edward IV. He'd been forced to marry one of Edward's wife's sisters, who he considered to be below himself in many ways. Uh, and that perhaps gives him a reason. In October 1483, he rebels against Richard III with the aim of, I think, trying to take the throne for himself. So potentially he kills the princes to clear the path and to turn people against Richard and drum up support for himself. And there are, there are at least as many contemporary and near-contemporary sources that name Buckingham as name Richard. And then there are... For me, there, aren't in, there isn't enough attention paid to the idea that they could have lived beyond Richard's reign, that he, he didn't really have any intention of murdering his preteen nephews <laughs> you know nowhere else do you see that as part of his character in the 30 right. years before he becomes king so he had options and there is a blueprint so the and it's part of Richard's family story and again this, this doesn't get given enough attention for my money so when Richard II is deposed in 1399 most people think his rightful heir is the Mortimer family so in the yeah. person of Edmund Mortimer by that point who goes on to become the fifth Earl of March Edmund Mortimer is Richard III's great-uncle, so it's part of his family story. And Henry IV, when he takes the throne, doesn't murder these two boys. Edmund has a little brother, Roger. He doesn't murder them. He has them brought up 
and they become utterly loyal to the Lancastrian regime to the point where Edmund exposes plots against Henry V just before Agincourt and they die, you know, Edmund dies in 1425 serving the Lancastrian regime as lieutenant of Ireland and I, I kind of almost refuse to accept that Richard wouldn't have tried that, that he wouldn't have known he had yeah. options and thought, just before I kill me some children, <laughs> why don't I try something that's worked in the past? Maybe he would have had to come back to killing them if they'd risen in revolt as adults, but then you deal with them as politically active adults. The reason that it's, it lingers in the public imagination so much is because it's the idea of this wicked uncle killing defenceless young children who haven't done anything. It definitely sounds, from what you're saying, like that may be a Hail Mary for Richard. Um, and it's very interesting to, to kind of explore those possibilities. But we're, we're looking at today's theories. You know, what was the attitudes, attitudes surrounding this at the time? It's really difficult. So all of the early certainty, so any, any certainty that Richard murdered his nephews during his lifetime comes in France. And France and England weren't friends no. at the time. So there is a reason that the French are keen to paint the English as terrible people who murder children. Not least the fact that France has its own minority crisis going on. They've got a 13-year-old king. So they're trying to draw parallels between saying, we don't want to be like those horrible English, do we? Yeah. You know, they murder people and then they get horrible monsters like Richard on the throne. So there is a kind of moral tale in all of those French stories of Richard doing it. There are sources within England that talk about rumours that something's happened to the princes but none of those sources in England name Richard and there's no certainty around any of this and it's interesting that some of those stories originate from places like Bristol so you think how does a story of what might have happened to princes in London reach Bristol it's a trade route so it's merchants coming out of London and they're taking the gossip to the ports with them so they're in the pub before they sail going, oh, you know what they're saying in London? And it, again, it's just gossip building into these bigger and bigger stories. So it looks like it's quite a widespread certainty when what it is is, is simply gossip making its way on the trade routes to various places. And the, and the source in Bristol doesn't even name Richard as being yeah. responsible. So it's, it's after Bosworth, after 1485, when Richard III is dead, that you begin to get a little bit more certainty around the idea that he might have killed his nephews. But again, we have to remember Henry Tudor has arrived from France, where all of those rumours are prevalent. And he has a vested interest in people believing that story because the princes are now rivals to him. And alongside that, he also needs a reason to discredit Richard because he's just killed him and taken his throne. So he needs Richard to be a bad guy. Otherwise, he might be the bad guy. (laughs) So he has kind of several reasons, several threads to the idea that he wants the princes to be dead and he wants Richard to be blamed for it. So then you begin to see this growth of the story. And I don't know that the Tudors particularly, Tudor monarchs particularly sponsor the story, but they're happy to let it continue to grow. It, it definitely builds into those ideas of Tudor propaganda and, and trying to build that Tudor myth, which is it's fascinating to see those, those gossip uh, rumours spread across Britain and those trade routes. Yeah, and I think even the later Tudor sources, when we look at things like Thomas More, who you know, first writes that really vivid story of the princes being killed and he reports speech and he reports exactly how it happened in the room even though he can't possibly have known what really happened we tend to put all of that down to Tudor propaganda and to some extent Shakespeare you know is the culmination of Richard's story at the end of that century but we lose the fact that most of those writers are also writing contemporary political satire Uh, and they're writing allegory they're writing political warnings into historical stories. So I read Thomas More's History of Richard III 
as a story about the dangers of tyranny that was probably aimed at the young Henry VIII, who comes to the throne and starts killing people left, right and yeah. centre. <laughs> Uh, and it's a warning that says, you know, if you behave like a tyrant, you won't last very long. I see Shakespeare's Richard III as a, a contemporary commentary on the fact that Elizabeth I is going to die pretty soon and she hasn't got an heir and she won't identify one. We're about to have a massive succession crisis. We're opening the door to murder and intrigue. And there's a, an interesting element to it. If, if you believe that Shakespeare was a recalcitrant Catholic, which lots of people do, he would have opposed the Cecil family who were championing the, the Protestant succession of James VI of Scotland, first of England. And we know that Robert Cecil, who becomes Earl of Salisbury under James the, the I and VI, we know that he suffered from kyphosis, so the forward curvature of the spine, yeah. which is what Shakespeare calls a bunchback, you know, and, and that he's called an imp. So that idea of the bottled spider... I, I think a contemporary Shakespearean audience would have seen this character hobble onto stage and known that they were meant to see Robert Cecil. Because we've lost all of that context, we don't necessarily see it now. And it's, it's, it's interesting drawing those parallels of, you know, they're not so different from how we are today, and these political satires today are warnings today. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I liken believing things like Thomas More and Shakespeare. I always liken it to watching Downton Abbey and thinking you completely <laughs> understand the politics of 1910s and 1920s England now. You know, I've got it all. I know exactly what happened. Now, I have one final fun question for you, Matt. And you know I'd, I'd like to do this on the podcasts. So what has been your favourite book, item or conversation that you've heard at, at Gloucester History Festival? I mean, there's so much great stuff that goes on here. If anyone's not been to Gloucester History Festival, I definitely recommend it. The lineup is stellar. I'm going to throw forward to, to tomorrow, uh, no, sorry, to Sunday. I'm going to throw forward to Sunday because I'm really looking forward to, to hearing Kat Jarman's talk on her new book, The Bone Chests, which is about the mortuary chests in Westminster Cathedral, um, which contain the bones of lots of Anglo-Saxon kings, queens, saints, and interesting figures. Wow. And her new book is all about what they can tell us. That sounds like an amazing talk, and I'm so disappointed I can't go to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, so it should be good. No, of course... You've written, uh, you've written a book, you're so active on social media and you have an amazing podcast. Where can people find all of those? Um, probably all over the place, <laughs> under, under their feet and in the whale a lot of the time. So the podcast is called Gone Medieval, covers all things in the, in the greatest millennium in human history <laughs> over the medieval period. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Matt Lewis Author, on Instagram at Matt Lewis History, on Facebook uh, again at Matt Lewis Author. Um, I try and do on these day posts fairly frequently uh, and talk about other interesting things. So, yeah, hunt me down. Yeah. I, I thoroughly recommend listening to Gone Medieval because I love it. It's part of my weekly rotation. Oh, thanks, so. <laughs> I thoroughly recommend listening to History with Jackson. So, Thank you very much, Matt. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. I really it's appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. It. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Great to talk to you.